This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin our series that tackles arguably the most popular writer in the English language, and that would be... Jane Austen! Jane Austen. (laughs) Uh, One significant critic, Bridget Brophy, described Austen as the greatest novelist of all time. Well, I'm not sure that's not uncontested, but uh, suffice it to say, she's done what few have done before or after her, and that is to become beloved by both critics and readers alike. I know the great American critic. If there's anyone that somebody knows in this field, it's the illustrious Harold Bloom compares her to William Shakespeare, nonetheless. So, in more contemporary words, she scores high on the tomato meter. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? The old Flickster thing? The old days where you used to go see movies and we would look at the tomato review. I think I need to reload the whole app on my phone. I haven't used it in so long. Poor Malco. In fact, I didn't even know until Anna, my daughter, told me that they just released a new version of Emma last year. But even during a pandemic, Jane Austen will always deliver a win. The Jane Austen fan base is formidable, everlasting, and ever-increasing band of brothers and sisters called the Jane Knights. And I feel their presence as I talk on the podcast, even now. <laughs> Janeites, are you making that up? I am not. I am absolutely not making These that up. These are people up. who are serious. <laughs> yes, the term actually was introduced in 1894. Think about that by a scholar who wrote an introduction to this new edition of Pride and Prejudice that was coming out. But it's taken on, obviously, a life of their own, and there are every variety of Janeite. Send us a tweet. If you are one, I know you're out there. 
During World War One, I, I have trouble saying that word. World, World War, War One. Kipling, mm. the the writer, published a story called "The Jainites" that was actually about a group of soldiers who were secret fans of Austin. So, I bring that up to show you that it's not just a bunch of old Marby suburbanite English teachers that like Jane Austen. The Jane Austen Society of North America has thousands of members, and that's just America. Obviously, the Jane Austen Society of the UK, that's closer to home, and it's expectedly well-developed. But there's a Jane Austen Society in Brazil and Australia and the Netherlands and the Czech Republic. Those are the the ones that I found out about. (laughs) So you're saying there's a global passion for all things Jane, and it's been around for a long time. Jane Austen is a legend, a force to be reckoned with, and her storytelling creates an intimacy and a sense of humble confidence that endears us to her characters, but not just to her characters, to her. She's everyone's best friend, and it makes me nervous to talk about her. It's quite intimidating. Her works, they're readable and they're enjoyable, even on the first pass, but they're not simple. Austin kind of reminds me of those people who are really good at their job, but they're so good at it, it makes the job look easy. Kind of like when you watch Tom Brady throw a 50-yard football, and then, well, I've done this actually, and you try it at the annual Thanksgiving football game, and you don't understand why yours only goes seven yards and falls. <laughs> I've seen your throws. I know. Or Tyra Banks. She makes smiling for the camera look so simple, and then you try it, and it's an awkward experience. And then the worst, this is the worst, those Pinterest people. They have the DIY projects, and you watch the video. They do this on TikTok, too. And then they take this, I don't know, anything, a horrible lampshade and some spray paint, and they make it look like a modern fixture, and you try it, and it looks like a horrible lampshade that you spray painted. <laughs> uh, I've had some of those fails I myself. Know. And, and I know what you mean, but but it's funny that you bring up Tyra Banks and smiling. I know. You wouldn't think modeling would be that hard, but just try to make a video clip for a podcast. It's very nerve-wracking and awkward. So if you're not following us on social media, you should definitely check out our awkward videos. We do try to be cutesy and funny, but we are no Tyra Banks. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But Jane Austen is. She makes you believe she's this little unintimidating auntie living in her little room, writing a few knots in the parlor about everyday life. But really, she's building a cult. (laughs) And turning people into Janeites. Yes, by the day. (laughs) Uh, It's certainly true that if you are reading in English, you know her name. Well, and if you read novels, you certainly read hers. And if you like reading, there's a good chance you've read more than one of hers. There are people more knowledgeable than myself listening, and I know you're out there. I respect you, and I invite your input. This is episode one of four. So if there's a tidbit that we absolutely should include, must include, can't live without, please send us an email, a message on Instagram or Twitter or any of the other social media things out there. Find us. A Jane Austen novel is like a Shakespeare play. Every time you read it, you're going to be enchanted by another detail you didn't notice before, a turn of phrase you hadn't appreciated, a nuanced political irony that you failed to be assaulted by the first time. Assaulted. Her subtlety is power. Well, and uh, truth be told, I have to admit, uh, for me, 
I know her better from the film versions than the book versions. Well, you're not in the minority, and they're surprisingly good. They're not like you know the Frankenstein ones that we we've that read. have missed the mark. <laughs> that the have story. missed the mark. No, there's no shortage of movie companies that are ready to monetize on the gift that keeps on giving. Jane Austen and. But they respect her. It's just amazing, and it cracks me up. The only thing that I find interesting is the difference. You can tell between the ones that are the British and the ones that are American-produced. I can tell immediately that the 1997 Emma is American-produced and Sense and Sensibilities done by the British. Uh, <laughs> I agree, and I'll tell you how this works for me. The biggest difference is that I don't need subtitles. <laughs> When the Americans are pretending to have British accents. But, but the British do? But the Brits, some of them, I have to have the subtitles because it, it's so quick and so fast. But anyway, uh, but do you think one continent makes better Austin movies than the other? Oh, you know I'm not going to take a position on that. <laughs> mm. But like everyone else in the world, you feel, I feel like I know Jane a little bit. And I think she would absolutely be very proud of her box office success. Jane was a pragmatist. She recorded every dollar her books ever brought in. She negotiated her own deals, learned to favor commissions over selling the copyrights, and I think she would have absolutely loved to know the commercial success of her legacy. In that sense, she's very modern and perhaps even middle class, for those of us who see that word in a positive light. So, having said that, she is also the quintessence of Regency England to the point that for many of us, or maybe should I say for myself, <laughs> I've come to think I understand a little bit about what it means to be English looking through the lens of Jane Austen's presentation of Regency England. When I know, of course, that's simplistic and misguided, but it's a tribute to the great Jane that that's what I think. One immediately distinguishing element, though, of coming from this Regency period is that Austen published all of her works anonymously. I'm pretty sure it would have been perceived as vulgar for a lady to put her name on the cover of a novel. She wasn't famous during her lifetime. Well, except for this little incident when her brother outed her. But that was kind of forgivable and perhaps endearing. I wouldn't be able to keep a secret if I had a celebrity <laughs> in the family. <laughs> he was proud. Yeah, well, it's kind of nice to think of him as being proud of her. Uh, in fact, their family seems to have been really close to all of her short life. And her writing period was so short and... And all of her books eventually became so popular. And I've just finished listening to Emma on Audible, and it's very easy to listen to. True. And in fact, if you're not a big reader, I do think listening to her work on Audible is the way to go. There's lots of amazing renditions. Emma Thompson was involved in the one we just listened to, and it's absolutely fantastic. Austin's characters and dialogue are natural. Her novel writing feels kind of like a movie script, and I think everyone can enjoy it, even if you don't think, oh, I'm not going to like an old Regency novel. But we have chosen, in case you haven't guessed, Emma to feature for this series, and I know there are other very beloved choices. But interestingly enough, 
I have not found a single critic who does not steadfastly declare with absolute certainty that Emma is Jane's masterpiece. And that is something I didn't really know when I first read the book as a young adult. I didn't read it for school. I read it because I loved Pride and Prejudice, and I thought, ooh, I want to read another Austen novel. I liked the title and thought, ooh, that's a fun-sounding name. A female hero. Of course. So <laughs> did you read Pride and Prejudice in school? Because I know many schools still put Pride and Prejudice at the top of their required reading list. Uh, no, I didn't. But I know that the sassy Elizabeth Bennett is lots of people's favorites because they did read her in high school. Our good friend Paul Dooley, who was chair of the English department at Bolton High School here in Memphis for over 20 years, certainly required all freshmen to read Pride and Prejudice the summer before entering the freshman honors English program. And both of my daughters dutifully did so. And to be quite honest, for that reason alone, I was going to pick Pride and Prejudice to do for the podcast until we got an email from one of our listeners, Emery from sunny San Diego. Emery wrote us and recommended we feature Emma. Emery said it was her all-time favorite for its cleverness. And after reading it again and preparing for this series, I have to admit Emery is absolutely right. It's extremely clever. So for those of you who are ready for a second Emery recommendation, Emery also gives a shout out to the new production of Emma starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Johnny Flynn, and Mia Goff. And I think it's charming too. It's got great musical choice. The costumes are fun and they do use a lot of Austin's original dialogue. So even though I will always be charmed by Pride and Prejudice, famously sarcastic first line, the one that gets better with every century. <laughs> and what is that? Well, let me quote it to you, because it must be quoted exactly. Hmm. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Huh. Uh, so she makes a matter-of-fact statement that society just absolutely accepted, but uh, she says it in such a way that brings to your mind uh, a sudden doubt as to whether that's the kind of thing society should accept or uh, may actually be foolish to not question. Exactly. It's so subtle, and it's what people love about it. If you look at that sentence, it's a truth universally acknowledged, and then by the end of the line, you're thinking, well, maybe it shouldn't be, but things... (laughs) But things like that are everywhere in a thousand different ways. And exactly what Emery means when she references Jane being so clever. So in honor of the great Jane and the great Emery, let's time travel to Regency England, explore the village life of Highbury, and meet our heroine, Emma Woodhouse. Gary, what the heck is Regency England? (laughs) Ah, Okay. Glad you ask. Um, and for starters, let me reference back uh, to the point you made about the way the Americans and British recreate a- ages of uh, English history. Um, Shonda Rhimes has produced this hit Netflix series called Bridgerton, and right now it's one of the most popular TV shows around the world, and it's seen in like over 82 million households. And that's the latest portrayal of this time period, and it's kind of a, a shining period in a lot of ways. And from my view... After just finishing Emma, it seems to borrow concepts from Jane Austen novels and mix them with elements of hit American TV series like Gossip Girl. And of course, 
Uh, she takes liberty with the music, the costuming, and other uh, modern elements to heighten the glamour. And uh, there's the preoccupation of the mothers and the daughters with marriage proposals and balls and etiquette. And it's it's on point. And honestly, it's not frivolous, although it may appear to us from kind of this vantage point of history. So let's talk about it in years. We can, If you've seen the show, you can kind of visualize the scene in your head, but Jane was born in 1775, but she only lived a few short years. She died in 1817, and she published only six novels, and they were all published between 1811 and 1817. Again, that's an incredibly short period of time, although it did take her, I don't know, something like 20 years to write them. But just to put her in context, Gary, those are her personal that's her personal story, her years. But what about the world at large? What was going on? Quite a bit, actually. Uh, the Regency years, precisely, were 1812 to 1820, which is not a long period of time. Uh, it obviously begins, her life begins before the Regency period. So um, I want to set this up to provide a little context. I would say the late 1700s and early 1800s were um, a time of great change for the English, but I know that's a ridiculous thing for any history teacher to say because um, every time is a great time of great change, and that's what history is. It's about change over time. But in the case of England or English society specifically, and for a country so rooted in tradition, the changes in this period started picking up the pace and running headlong into tradition. And, and of course, that trend hasn't stopped yet to this day. And uh, the pace of change has only gotten uh, exponentially faster since then. But at that time, the war with France and the Industrial Revolution had changed the rules of engagement between the social classes and between the genders. And for uh, many up-and-coming Englishmen and women, life was beginning to look very different. And to use a word often um, associated with that period, it was looking much more improved. Uh, but improvements, although even if incremental, are also turbulent, and we see that side of it when we read uh, the history of it. If you're an American, you think of 1776 as a very important year because that's the year of our Declaration of uh, Independence. And if you're French, you think of 1789 as the beginning of the, the Revolution and the Republic. And if you're English, these years are years where England is at the height of its power. Um, King George III, and yes, that's the George, that's the one that uh, Thomas Jefferson had a beef with in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but in spite of that small hiccup, we call the American Revolution over here, King George III had had a long, successful reign before and after that. Uh, he had defeated Napoleon. He had founded the Second British Empire. Um, King George III had become an adept politician um, as he got older and eventually left a lot of work to the capable administrator of uh, one of Great Britain's greatest prime ministers, William Pitt the Younger. Uh, this leadership left England on top of the Western world, so to speak. But at the same time, on a personal level, uh, King George's story was much more difficult. He had a large family, 15 children from a wife he met on his wedding day. Oh, dear. But he seemed to be, you know, <laughs> devoted to them. Well, it worked out. Well, the problem was that he also had a disease. And uh, many scholars think it was porphyria. And porphyria is a rare genetic condition 
that affects the liver and it causes toxins to be released in the body. And um, one of King George's uh, symptoms of an impending attack of the disease was that his urine would turn blue. Uh, eventually this disease is going to leave him blind and deaf and eventually insane and incapable of running the country. And even though he was still alive and he was still king. Oh, that's a problem. Uh, it is. It, it certainly helped out to cause the American Revolution. But <laughs> uh, the period of time when he was still king but not capable of running the country is called the Regency. That's why it's a shorter period of time. Um, George IV was his son and was supposed to and eventually did inherit the crown. But unfortunately, it seems George IV had the gift of making everyone despise him. Oh, my. That's unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Machiavelli would say so, too. Uh, It it is is, not the way I would want to stand out. Uh, Ultimately, he would be one of the most detested of the British monarchs. And apparently his father thought this might happen because before ascending to the throne, his father, although he loved him, did not want him for his heir. And no one from the government did. There were even talks of letting a woman take the reins of power to avoid his ascendancy. Well, you know, I'm for the girl power, and I know, you know, Queen Victoria's in the wings shortly to come, but what's wrong with this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I'm not totally qualified to say, but it it seems he wasn't a serious person. He was uh, good-looking, and uh, no problem with that, but he was a playboy, to use a modern-day term, and he was not interested at all in being a serious head of state. He became best friends with one of his father's most aggressive political rivals. Hmm, Freudian. (laughs) This guy was uh, Charles James Fox of the Whigs. And, of course, the Whigs were the opposition party to the King of England. And uh, so George IV partied all the time. And where his father was very pious. And he scandalously and secretly married a Catholic girl named Mrs. Fitzherbert. That's a hard name to say, Fitzherbert. It was a harder marriage to to live. To. Oh, dear. If you don't understand the history of the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church and Henry VIII, then you might want to catch up on why this was such a big deal. But uh, So he, uh, he loved her, but he had to put her away as a mistress in order to marry someone that was more suitable to the crown. Oh, dear. That story's been told in British history. <laughs> oh, endlessly. And it will happen again. That's for sure. Uh, but at the time, it was actually against the law for a Catholic to be a monarch or the spouse of a monarch in Britain. So in George IV's case, it was annulled, and um, he dutifully married Princess Caroline of Brunswick. And unfortunately, they hated each other. That's unfortunate. <laughs> they didn't live together and carried on endless oh, affairs, dear. And bringing disgrace every which way to everyone concerned. And when George III became permanently insane, um, George IV was declared regent to everyone's dismay and fear. And <laughs> ultimately, though, uh, he didn't make any real scandalous changes in the way things were being run. In 1820, when his father died, he became king and He only really ruled for 10 years, and honestly, although he played a public role, he seems to have left the government business alone, thankfully. Well, is there any positive legacy to him at all? Well, uh, he actually did in his own way, and in particular to the arts. And his most notable contribution was his collection of art, and I find his most endearing legacy uh, to be the imprint that he left in terms of architecture, and he did have refined taste in that regard. And he turned Buckingham into a palace, Ooh. 
including the iconic archway, now known as the Marble Arch, which uh, since has been relocated. And uh, he remodeled Windsor Castle, and he's responsible for Regent Street and Regent Park, among other things. Lots of things that we are familiar with even to this day. Big things. But, you know, interestingly enough... You talked a whole long time, and nothing about what you said ever shows up in an Austin novel. True. <laughs> and and uh, if we overlay Jane Austen's life to the life of the country at the time, we see they overlap this period exactly. George the Fourth was regent and not king during the years these books were published. And uh, the Battle of Waterloo, where Lord Wellington beats Napoleon, is in 1815. And uh, these are glory years in as far as foreign politics goes. And uh, as far as internal affairs, there was also a lot going on in the country. Um, England was what today we would call a developing nation. And although they had an upper and emerging middle class, about a third of the country, the laboring population, really lived permanently on the verge of starvation. So yeah, think about that for a moment. That's a lot of people. Yeah, that is um, sad. In, yes. In 1819, the Peterloo Massacre stands out because 60,000 people came out to protest poor conditions and uh, they were charged, uh, as in physically charged, by the cavalry. And uh, this is social turmoil on a large scale. England at this time was an extremely political place. There was strong patriotism, uh, but there was also very strong sentiment for social reform. And Austin, um, who is known to have read as many newspapers as she could get her hands on, uh, and who had two brothers who were admirals in the Navy. She was clearly very well aware of everything going on around her in this grand scale. And yet, how interesting that none of what you just described shows up in her novels. Well, I say none of it. Of course, Pride and Prejudice has soldiers, most notably Lydia Bennett running off with the scandalous Mr. Wickham. Oh, my. <laughs> and in and there's that interesting discussion about stamps, but that's as close as you get when it comes to politics. <laughs> oh, the stamps. Um, they weren't received well in the American I'd colonies say they weren't. either. So it's mentioned, <laughs> and for us that doesn't seem like much of anything to pay attention to, but uh, actually in Regency England, this was a big deal. And Austin's reference to the stamps and Emma would not go unnoticed. And um, as we know, the government raised money to pay for all these wars by increasing the charges to mail letters. And this is interesting. Unlike today, the person who had to pay for the stamp was the person who received the letter, not the person who sent it. So don't send me anything. <laughs> it's like a collect call. <laughs> yeah, you're literally mailing a bill to your friend, which is what happens in Emma when Jane Fairfax writes Miss Bates. And one reason why poor Miss Bates values the letters so much maybe is because she had to pay hmm. for them. Plus, you had to pay per number of sheets that you mailed. So obviously, and Miss Bates points this out too, good people write on every available space to save the recipient you know, extra charges. So it's interesting when Miss Bates and Emma says this, in general, she feels the whole paper and crosses half what she's trying to say that she's just written on every teeny tiny space on the whole page. And Miss Bates, of course, appreciates everything and appreciates that. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of letters, and there are quite a few letters in Emma, another thing to notice, unlike today, 
is that your letters were public things. You didn't write a letter just to your mother or your sister or uh, as private correspondence. Yeah, I find it different. You know, today, if you open someone's mail, even their email, it's very much ill-received and considered a privacy violation. (laughs) You wouldn't hardly do it to your child. But that was not the case in Regency England. Um, A letter was understood in kind of the same way we think of a newsletter today. Uh, they're public documents, really more like an Instagram or a Facebook post. And people uh, read their letters to anyone and everyone, and they did so very proudly. Uh, they contained news and everyone in Highbury, just like in Memphis. How's that for a comparison? <laughs> they like news and politics and society and deaths and births and big events and anything that's going on. And uh, remember, information in those days was a commodity. So, Hopefully that gives you kind of a, a bit of an overview of the world that we're getting into. You know, it kind of reminds me of when we had that discussion about Lorraine Hansberry when we talked about that in Raisin in the Sun. And she said that she wanted to talk about the universal by looking at the particular. In other words, I want to talk about all of humanity by focusing in on a few particular lives. And honestly, I can see that's what Jane Austen does as well. No one reads Jane Austen if they're wanting to understand the global intrigue caused by Mr. Pitt's war or Napoleon's exile to Elba. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not going to get that. No, you read Jane Austen to understand that at the end of the day, we are all concerned about our own little village and our own future prospects. There's a word she uses a lot. And although it's very un-American to admit such a thing, even in a democratic egalitarian country like the U.S., to be honest, we're really interested in money and rank. And if you doubt that, Look at BuzzFeed. <laughs> Our hypocrisy is revealed in every story. <laughs> oh, you can never escape the, the draw of elitism. Oh, no. Uh, well, Re- Regency England provides us with this kind of wonderful context for all of this. Uh, they were more honest about it. And the middle class uh, this time period was actually a small group of people, an estimated around 25,000 families. But it isn't a static society. It's moving. And People born poor could break into the next social group, and people did break into the groups. And this is exactly what we're seeing through the entirety of Emma. Yes, Robert Martin is an up-and-coming farmer getting his foot into the middle class. And Mr. Elton openly admits that everyone has, to use his words, their level. And he was very aware and concerned about this. (laughs) Well... He's right to notice uh, that. I mean, all kinds of merchants and tradesmen and lawyers were acquiring wealth at this time period and mixing with those of higher ranked birth. And Emma mixing with Harriet is an excellent example. Mr. Elton, uh, like many before and after him, wants to use the age old tried and true method of marrying into a higher level. A higher level. Instead of doing the hard work of building themselves into the higher level. Well, it wasn't presented in a very positive light, I must add. We said at the beginning of the episode that this was the age of improvements. And you use that word. And I love that language. We see it in all the Austin novels. And it's very pronounced in this one. And it's the core of their culture and a driving force throughout all of Austin's novels. And one that I really hadn't understood the first time that I read the book, at least not, you know, consciously. 
I didn't understand that when these girls are practicing their pianoforte or learning French or learning to draw, it's because they're improving themselves, making themselves more fashionable isn't just vanity, it's becoming more acceptable, building a better future, turning yourself from a poor girl into a proper lady. And the same thing applies to the men. Um, it was so important to behave like a gentleman. More and more uh, men could afford to drink tea, something that was expensive, in their own parlors, uh, sometimes even two parlors. They could learn to write letters and learn to dance properly. And uh, when we understood the purpose of these routines, then you can understand the culture. We understand what's happening in a book on a social political level. And for me, if you don't understand this, the book can mistakenly uh, be understood as people in pursuit of idleness and wasting time by attending balls. And they absolutely were not. They were improving, uh, improving themselves and uh, the lives of their children and the homes in which they live and the landscapes of their community. And Uh, People are fixing things up, and they're making for themselves a better place for their children. And in 18th and even 19th century England, social status and thus survival often depended not on money alone, but on the manners. Culturally constructed markers that defined who you were in the society. Uh, If you look closely at the um, hideous Mrs. Elton... Austin portrays uh, an example of those people who are clearly working very hard at pushing their way upward in the world by snubbing everyone in the process. And don't we know that person in every culture, wherever we live, I assure you, even in the world of public school in Bartlett, Tennessee, these efforts of total vanity are present, although I don't see the point. <laughs> if you look at the novel, if, if you think of it that way, and to use your language, so these lens of social constructs, that makes her work political. It really does. In a form that's very understated, there's satire, just like that I quoted from the Pride and Prejudice book. Right. Uh, she is absolutely Jane, the political commentator, Uh, without ever bringing King George or William Pitt into the discussion. Very clever. Well, I want to say, too, you knew I would get here, that she's also Jane the Feminist. Of course. (laughs) This comes through in every one of her novels. Austin is frustrated, possibly infuriated, at the limited prospects of women being able to improve, to use their word, their lots. The ways in which women, especially intelligent women, were allowed to improve obviously, it's clear, aren't fair. Well, uh, that's something that Mary Shelley and Emily Bronte bring up in their work. Well, of course, all the women writers would. Likely, they're writing or speaking for all undereducated women as well. And we'll talk about education in a later episode during this period. But unfortunately, this conundrum is where Jane Austen in real life is trapped. And a lots of ways... Well, let me just say this. She's better off because her family is somewhat comfortable than a lot of people. She's not confined. And and Emma, she wants to compare the future of Jane Fairfax, who has to become a governess, with becoming a slave, which isn't really you know, a fair comparison if you understand what slavery is. But the way that she uses the word expresses a level of her frustration. She's not rich. But she finds herself confined, even if it is with pleasant society. 
Her world is not designed for women that are like her, intelligent, aggressive, and active. And although we know that Jane Austen in real life was interested in love for love's sake, she wasn't interested in love as a social climbing infrastructure, uh, especially if it's going to be the only infrastructure for climbing up in the world. So that's where her irony, to me, is sometimes it's most witty. The restricted social vision for women is the satire. But in Emma, unlike Sense and Sensibility or even Pride and Prejudice, she's going to look at the pride of women, and I find this interesting, not from the bottom up, which you would expect, somebody down trying to climb up to the top of the social ladder. She's going to reverse it. Emma is the only novel where the title is the heroine. The title is not a place. It's not a virtue. It's a woman, and she is important. Emma is not an ordinary woman. And I want to throw out a literary term here. Emma is what we call a Bildungsroman. Although you may or not be familiar with that German word, I know you probably are familiar with the concept. It's associated with what we call a coming-of-age novel. And I know there's a little bit more involved, but it's this old archetype, really. It's a novel that's concerned with growing up. It usually involves a quest where a boy becomes a man through a series of tests. Does that sound familiar? And the story involves watching the man's psychological development, education, rebellion, for sure, ultimately maturity, entry into manhood. And there's lots of books that kind of do that. You think Catcher of the Rye, Harry Potter, Great Expectations, Huckleberry Finn, The Outsiders, and of course, Pinocchio. (laughs) But I could go on. There's tons of them. Well, Emma falls into the same category. When we think of the expectations of women in Regency England, Jane now is becoming a critic, and Emma is just not a criticism of a woman's path to professional or financial security. She's questioning the very essence of what it means to be a lady, something that they were very concerned about, no matter your profession or financial status. Just as there is a view, which you referenced before, of what a proper gentleman was to be, there's also a view at this time, an accepted proposition of what a lady, a proper lady would be. In in the case of Emma, what should Emma be? And Emma absolutely challenges this concept. A proper lady in Regency England, and I'm reading this from text, was passive, selfless, with no ambition, no personal agency. To quote one critic who said this, a demure young woman with eyes downcast, lips pressed into a faint and silent smile. That's ladyhood. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm gathering you're not a fan. Well, I don't know if I would have done well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that description reminds me of all the girls presenting themselves to the queen as they bowed before the throne when they were coming out in society. They did that and very thing again. Another reference to Bridgerton. So, but Emma is none of that. Jane Austen was always afraid of how the audience of her period would receive Emma. She actually now famously said. I'm going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will like much. Well, today we don't understand that because we love Emma, but Emma at her time was a challenge to the status quo. The flaws in her character were flaws that would not have stood out if she were a man, 
but they're annoying in a woman. In fact, sometimes they're actually kind of annoying even now. The stereotype of female heroines up to that point had always been the Cinderella. That's the trope. That's the archetype. A beautiful woman, probably very, very poor, poorly treated, rescued because of her internal and external beauty, probably by a man. This is the kind of schemata that we were used to. It's kind of what Pride and Prejudice does a little bit. But Emma defies that. From the very first sentence, we're seeing a different sort of woman. So, Gary, read sentence number one, as we are prone to do when we start books. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in a world with very little to distress or vex her. Emma certainly defies every dictum in the conduct books of that day. She does. She's strong. She's assertive. Rich. But she's also caring and sensitive to others. She wants to help Harriet. We're going to find that out. She doesn't want to hurt her. And we're going to find out that she's highly protective of her father. She is a protector. But she is going to grow an understanding of what it means to combine all of these attributes together. And here's something else. It's all going to happen in the confines of a very little world. None of this exploring out into the great unknown. Well, and in a sense, that's why she doesn't come across uh, as obviously a feminist. She's not taking a job. She's not moving to London. uh, She's not following the male path to maturity, and and she doesn't even want to. That's it exactly. And in that way, Austin is asserting a different worldview, her worldview on us, on what a female heroine should be, what female strength and leadership could be. Emma views the world not as a hierarchy. Now we think about that. It's not a hierarchy for her, but instead it's a web of relationships that are interdependent. She doesn't want to sacrifice her relationships at the expense of intellectual or financial independence. She doesn't see those as contradictions in terms. Something like that wouldn't even occur to her. It's interesting. She's a domestic heroine, so to speak. Let's read the next two paragraphs and you'll see what I mean. She was the youngest of the two daughters of a most affectionate, indulgent father and had, in consequence of her sister's marriage, been mistress of his house from a very early period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to have more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses, and her place had been supplied by an excellent woman as governess, who had fallen little short of a mother in affection. Sixteen years had Miss Taylor been in Mr. Woodhouse's family, less as a governess than a friend, very fond of both daughters, but particularly of Emma. Between them, it was more the intimacy of sisters. Even before Miss Taylor had ceased to hold the nominal office of governess, the mildness of her temper had hardly allowed her to impose any restraint. And a shadow of her authority being now long passed away, they had been living together as friend and friend, very mutually attached. And Emma, doing just what she liked, highly esteeming Miss Taylor's judgment, but directed chiefly by her own. (laughs) 
Well, Emma, like many women, like many modern women, is interested and views the world through her relationships. The book starts out establishing who she is through her relationships. Her father, Miss Taylor. She's interested in intimacy and doesn't apologize for it. She's happy, clever, rich, handsome, and interconnected. It's also interesting to see that she is not unemployed. Emma has duties. She's the manager of her father's home, and this is a job that she does not reject, nor does Austin devalue it. Like we might, in 21st century women, find this definition of female duties limiting, but Austin is not willing to do that. She doesn't devalue the importance of domestic life. And although Jane herself never married and was in many ways what we would call a traditional professional woman, she doesn't think that all women must be one thing. The definition of a lady in Emma is really internal. It's of an internal nature. It's strength of character, independence, choice. Those are what is at the core. This is an important place for things that are specifically feminine. She values good taste and artistry. A choice to devote your life to what you choose is the freedom, regardless of where you rank on the social scale. What makes Emma interesting or endearing, at least to me, is that we watch this young lady grow up and she's trying to define who she is intellectually, emotionally, but she's honest and she allows herself the freedom to be humble about it. We see Emma because, and we're going to talk about this next week, we get this psychological perspective of her, watch herself make mistakes, be honest about them, and then forgive herself. And to be that person who can honestly look at yourself, you're allowed to grow. Marriage may or may not be a fit for that. It's a wonderful place for some, and Emma thinks about that. But it is an essential to completeness as a human being. And this was something that Jane found out in her own life. That's what Emma finds out in many ways. Emma is the portrait of a lady who understands herself enough by the end of the book. She learns who she is enough to assert personal power, her personal morality within herself, as well as in her community. Next week, we're going to watch her do all those political, social, psychological things. <laughs> oh, my. But she's going to delight you while she does it. <laughs> well, that takes charm for sure. It do does. We'll get into some of Austin's personal stories. Well, I know people are interested, but uh, that's it for today. There's your intro to the endearing heroine. Emma Woodhouse. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we always like to ask that you uh, check us out on our Facebook page, on our How to Love Lit podcast page, on our Instagram page, and now on our YouTube channel. See you next time. Peace out. for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.